Amen. You may be seated. I have to fetch my Bible from the baptistry. Uh, I invite you to turn with me in Scripture this morning to uh, 2 Corinthians. Dustin read it for you just a few moments ago, so I won't reread the passage in its entirety. Suffice it to say that we're taking huge chunks of Scripture. We're not doing a true uh, exegesis of them in terms of going in-depth with exactly what Paul is saying line by line, verse by verse, but we're taking huge chunks uh, and we're deriving certain principles from them as we think about ministry and the fact that as saints, as those who believe in Jesus Christ, we are all called to ministry, not in the sense of standing on a stage and preaching, not in the sense of public uh, teaching of the scriptures, but for some of us, it might mean that. For all of us, it does mean serving each other at our own expense for the benefit and the blessing of those around us to the glory of God. God has called you as a Christian who believes in Jesus. God has called you to minister, that is to serve others for their benefit at your expense to the glory of God. And that's what we're working through here in 2 Corinthians. We're looking at the life of Paul and specifically how he ministered. We're not going verse by verse and doing an in-depth exegesis. We're deriving broad principles for us as we get ready to kick off a new ministry year. And so with that said, as is our custom, we're just going to pause and we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to help us. And then we'll jump in and we'll, we'll get to work and look at what, what Paul is saying here. So if you would, uh, please bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much, God, for your word. Thank you so much for the life of the Apostle Paul. And as we saw last week, we see, Lord, that you took him through all kinds of hardship and affliction. And that you walked him through unimaginable suffering for the sake of your name that we might be comforted. Lord, we, we remember that word from last week, how you, Father, may walk us through suffering and affliction, not necessarily as a means to punish us, not necessarily because we've sinned or done something wrong, but sometimes, Lord, your purposes are that we would be capable of comforting others who are also suffering. Lord, as we are reminded once again of that, that theme, that definition of ministry, serving others at our own expense for their benefit to your glory. Father, our prayer this morning is that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text before us. That once again, you would show us, God, what it means to minister. And specifically this morning, Lord, my prayer is that you would remind us that it isn't about charisma. It isn't about talent. It's about character. And our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would just drive that truth home into our hearts, that character matters more than talent or charisma. Do this, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been listening to, in in recent days, this podcast uh, pertaining to Mars Hill, Mars Hill, a church, a famous church, uh, all throughout uh, the, the early 2000s. Uh, located in Seattle, Seattle, Washington, just to our south. And this podcast is titled The Rise and Fall 
of Mars Hill. And it's essentially a story about a small group of Christians who, who planted a church in Seattle in 1996, so going back over 24 years ago. And, and that small church plant in the inner city of Seattle eventually grew into a massive megachurch, over 10,000 people. But that megachurch wasn't just a megachurch. It became a global movement. It, it, it spread all across the world. And then in 2014, just seven years ago, overnight, it all came crashing down. The podcast documents how God was still active and at work in the midst of that situation. But it does take a clear-eyed view to the pastor, the lead pastor, the senior pastor, the preaching pastor, who was at the center of that controversy, Mark Driscoll. And one thing that we can be sure of is that the jet rocket rise, the soaring heights to which this megachurch ascended, as well as the meteoric plunge to which it fell overnight was a result, and it can be attributed to the faulty character of Mark Driscoll. The podcast documents, again, many notable achievements, and they're were even a number of very creative and even innovative ways of sharing the gospel that were dreamed up and imagined at Mars Hill. But at the center of it all was one individual who had character flaws which were observed and noticed from the very beginning, yet were ignored because this particular preacher happened to be very talented and very gifted in the pulpit. So even though everybody was aware that there were character flaws from the beginning, they turned a blind eye to those character flaws because of the way that this man was able to draw a crowd. In short, this congregation was prioritizing charisma and charm and capability over character, specifically godly character, which is why this church, though it grew to be over 10,000 people attending every week, it's why this church eventually imploded. God reminds us even today that when it comes to personal ministry, as we are all called to engage in, if we would do it well, if we would do it to the glory of God, character Counts. Our character matters. So we come to 2 Corinthians. And what I want you to understand today is that as we have the advent of the internet, the rise of social media and modern technology, we have access to a number of incredibly amazing, eloquent, gifted, talented, capable preachers. And we listen to these men, and we are often, I think, deceived by our immediate access to these people into thinking that what is most significant when we minister to others is our talent or our charisma or our charm. But one thing that Paul reminds us of here in Second Corinthians, that is just not true. What matters most is character. In chapter, tail end of chapter 1 of Second Corinthians, and again into chapter 2, one of the things that we see here is Paul's report to the church at Corinth and his defense of some of his decisions. Others in the congregation at Corinth had questioned Paul's moral fiber. They're questioning his character. 
Now, as Paul is responding to those criticisms of his character, he has to set the record straight before he wants to move on to the main body of the, of the letter, the main portion of his message to the, the, his second letter here to the church at Corinth. In Paul's report to the church at Corinth, he isn't citing qualifications for ministry. We have those elsewhere, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus. He's not really working his way through the qualifications for ministry, but he does demonstrate for us in this incredibly autobiographical section of 2 Corinthians the character of a minister, how a minister ought to behave even in difficult ministry circumstances. Okay? So, I'm, again, I'm not going to read you through the whole passage, but uh, we see a couple of major points going on here. In the first section, I would say verses, chapter 1, verses 12 to verses 14, Paul spends that first section talking about his conscience, and he's emphasizing that as he ministered to the church in Corinth, he did so with integrity, and he did so with holiness. Then in verses, chapter 1, verses 15 to verses 22, Paul emphasizes that as he ministered to them, he did so in faithfulness. He wasn't double-minded. He wasn't constantly changing his mind. He knew what it was he wanted to do, and he, was, he had absolute integrity as he pursued that. In verses, chapter, two, chapter 1, verses 23, into chapter 2, up to verse 4, and again, this is one of those sections where I think this is the unit even though we have a chapter break there, chapter two comes right in the middle of this paragraph. I, I do believe it's a singular paragraph of thought. So chapter one, verses 23 to chapter two, verses four, Paul talks about, um, he talks about the joy that he has in serving the church in Corinth. And one of the things we see that, it, that it's got to be a part of our character as we seek to minister to each other, as we seek to serve each other, it's gotta be joy. And then last but not least, Paul talks about forgiveness. So let's just dive in right quick. One of the major issues that Paul's opponents have against him is that he says, they allege that he says one thing and he does another. I believe that they were trying to make this case in a number of different examples, but the most obvious, which Paul responds to here, was that Paul apparently had made travel plans with the Corinthians. He was going to come back and visit them a second time, but then he changed those travel plans. And again, to you and me, it doesn't seem like a big deal. After all, we live on Kamloops time, right? Some of you are, not, are nervous. Do I say amen to that? And you know, if, you, if you've listened to me preach before, you, you don't say amen to that. If we say we're going to meet someone at, say, you know, 11 o'clock or whatever the appointed time is, we need to be punctual. We need to be on time. If we said we're going to be there at a certain time, we need to be there at a certain time. And yet, because we've all lived in Cam, we all live in Kamloops, this is our culture, we all know that there's sort of this <clears throat> unofficially agreed to by some, thoroughly preached against by a few, sort of this rule that allows for us to be five minutes late or 10 minutes late or 25 minutes late, as the case may be. But that is not what Paul is touching on here. He is saying there's no opportunity, there is to be no room for saying one thing and doing another, and he defends it. And again, his critics are criticizing him. Their real goal is to hammer him on the gospel. Their real goal is to hammer him on, on some of his doctrinal points, but they make this criticism from the basis of his character because they, they criticized him in saying that he made these travel plans. He said he was going to be 
be here, and then he didn't show up. And so he is saying yes and no, he's saying one thing and he's doing another thing, and on the basis of this criticism that they make against his character, from that small issue, they then try to argue to the larger issue that because he is faithless in his travel arrangements, he is also faithless in his doctrinal and theological commitments. And that's, that's really at the heart of what is going on here. And so Paul, in responding to that, he's going to respond and he is going to defend his character. And as I said, he's going to defend it in four ways, which we're going to look at this morning. The first is his sincerity and holiness. In verses 12 to 14, he says, our boast is this, this is chapter one, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity and not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And he says, supremely so toward you. Supremely so toward you. In verse 12, we see that his character and his decisions are not made based on worldly wisdom. He's, he's, he's not returning to Corinth, sure, but it's not because he got a better offer, like there was a better speaking engagement somewhere else. It's not for any other earthly reason. He is driven instead, he says, by the grace of God, which produced holiness in his life. Therefore, he's able to say in this letter that his reasons for not returning to them a second time were not for sinful reasons. His conscience is clear. He can honestly say that his conscience is clear. We continue to see his sincerity again in verses 13 and 14. And it was, he, he goes on to allege in those verses that it was never his desire to mislead or deceive the church. He still believes the best things about the church at Corinth, and he feels that they have no reason to doubt him based on his actions. And throughout their relationship, and even in his recent change of plans, what I want you to see is that Paul is acting like Christ. He is behaving the way Jesus would behave, not the way that the world would behave. And therefore, as Paul says to the church at Corinth, they have no reason to doubt him. They can see, if they are willing to look closely, his holiness and his sincerity. It seems today in ministry that we focus way, way more of our time on developing programs or snazzy websites or strategies and, and, and all of these kinds of things. But when we look at the Apostle Paul, what was of considerable concern to him was his ability to be trusted by those to whom he would minister. And he is here explaining his conscience and the fact that he's acting uh, with a clear conscience to the, with, with regards to his ministry to them. And, and again, it's not my purpose to get into the nitty-gritty details of exactly what he says, but one of the things that I want to draw your attention to, First Baptist Church, as we're getting ready to go into a new ministry year, as school is getting ready to kick off in September, it is very easy for us to become enamored with things like websites and programs and, and doing all of these different things. And, and don't misunderstand me. We, we have a church website. We are, we are live streaming. We, we use technology. While those things are good, they're not as crucial to God as the truthfulness of our word. And it's lived out in the small day-to-day -day decisions. Integrity, truthfulness, sincerity, these things matter. They matter. 
Whereas you and I, I think, feel very, very comfortable saying, yeah, yeah, I'll meet you at 11 o'clock, and then we don't show up until 11.30. That was not the case for Paul. We see that his life is on display for the Corinthians, which means that if he said something, he was going to do it. Last year, I was uh, uh, overseeing youth ministry for a season while Pastor Ryan and, and Kyla were out with, she was, she was pregnant, and, and uh, I had these kids come in, and our first, our first sort of kickoff to the year, we were playing laser tag, and I handed out all these guns, you know, all these laser tag guns to all these kids, and I said, now, do not pull the trigger. Let me explain some rules. And, and when you pull a trigger, it makes like a shot sound. And then there's like the, the ringing of like a shell that is like falling on the ground. It's like, ding, 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 ding. You can like hear it. And uh, they just thought that was the coolest sound ever. So I was like, now don't shoot it. I need to explain some rules. And of course, I haven't done youth ministry in like 20 years. So I thought that would suffice just to get, tell them not to do it. And of course, as soon as I said that, I'm like, who shot that? Who shot that? And they're all like, mm, uh, I don't know, you know. And so I was like, okay, guys, seriously, I just need to explain some ground rules. I don't want you pulling the trigger or looking at your gun. Just listen to me. I need to, you know, walk you through the parameters of the game. They're like, yeah, okay. I said, if I hear one more, I'm going to have to take it away from you. Now, I didn't really want to take their gun away. Uh, I thought that that sort of stern warning would, would scare them off, you know, like, oh, I better not pull my trigger. So I started my, my explanation of the rules, and immediately, pew, 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 pew. I'm like, and I know exactly who did it. And I, I even know this kid in particular. He's one of those guys that he means well. He doesn't have a bad heart. He just probably just holding the gun and just, you know, just spazzed out and pulled the trigger. But in that moment, I have said to him, if you shoot it, I will take it away from you. I didn't really want to take it away. And I actually thought it was pretty innocent what had actually happened. I saw the whole thing. But in an hour, I'm going to be preaching the gospel. And I need him to know that when I say something, I mean it, that I'm sincere in it. And so even though I didn't want to take his gun away, I took his gun away. And I didn't have anybody else pull any more triggers at that moment. They were like, oh, Finger off the trigger, like, like they teach you when you take your PAL course, right? Like, you don't pull that trigger unless you mean to shoot it at somebody. And, uh, and uh, we were able to move forward. That's what Paul is driving at here in this first section of 2 Corinthians. When we say something, church, when we aren't even really careful in thinking through what exactly it is that we're saying, when we just say something, even if we actually intend it as sort of a you know, kind of an idle threat that we're not really sincere about. Remember that it is the same mouth that we have been given by God that we are to use to proclaim the gospel. And if we want them to believe us that we're being sincere about Jesus Christ atoning death on the cross, we have got to be sincere about everything that we say. There's no room for just saying different things, not really meaning them, or over-exaggerating or under-exaggerating things. We need to be clear in the words of our mouth. And we need to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, is our conscience convicting us right now? Because God will speak to us about our speech if we would listen to him. And Paul is saying to the church here at Corinth, I have a clear conscience. I had sincerity when I ministered to you. The second thing, 
we talk about faithfulness. Verses 15 to 21. He says in verse 15, because I was sure of this, sure of of better things for the church at Corinth, he says, I wanted to come to you at first so that you might have a second experience of grace. He visited them. He planted the church. Travel happened. He had to leave. He was hoping to come back, and he wanted to come back in order that he could bless them. As he says here, that they might have a second experience of grace. Verse 16, he says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. He poses the question, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He says, that, is that what you really think? And he goes on, he says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And he goes on to say, it is for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, he was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. And here we see the issue at hand, just as we previously mentioned above. Paul planned to visit Corinth twice, but he only apparently was able to do so once. And so the criticism that they're making against him is that he's double-minded, he's a hypocrite, he's not fully sincere when he makes his travel plans. He just sort of says one thing, but he does another. And he answers passionately in verses 17 to 18, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans like a worldly man ready to say yes and no at the same time? In other words, Paul is saying that our planning and our ministering to each other should not be fickle. We should not be double-minded. Paul was not double-minded. He was unified in what he wanted to do which means that as we're thinking about engaging in ministry for another year, some of us are going to say, yes, I want to serve in Awana, or I want to serve in worship, or I want to serve in Sunday school. And what happens is we're going to pray about it, we're going to feel like, yes, this is the direction God wants us to do, and then we're going to sign up for it. And then you know what's going to happen? The calendar is going to roll forward. The school year is going to happen. And then the busyness of the holiday season is going to arrive. We're going to be Christmas shopping. And I mean, who knows what all it's going to look like with potentially new COVID restrictions. And there's going to be a lot of things pulling at us in a lot of different directions. And we're going to be stressed out. And then the first thing all too often that we begin to cut is our commitment to ministry. Call it Pastor Ryan. I know I committed to serving in youth group this year. But, like, I'm really busy. I'm way behind on my Christmas shopping, and I I need to get after that, and so I'm not going to be able to make youth group on Thursday night, even though you're counting on me. Now, that's, in effect, what they're criticizing Paul for, and he says that is not the reason why he did not show up. He was not vacillating. He was not making plans according to earthly wisdom or acting like an earthly man. He is saying that he was not fickle, So what exactly is he saying? He goes on to say, it hasn't been yes and no, but it's just been yes. He says to them, our life and our ministry to you is a resounding yes, yes, yes. We are for you. We are not against you. We are passionate for you. We want to minister to you and serve you, he says, for your holiness, for your faith, for your hope, for your love, for your joy, over and over and over again. He says, we weren't saying yes and no. He was like, like, no, we were saying yes, yes, yes. He wanted to come. Now, he didn't come. So it begs the question, what happened? Was he saying yes and no at the same time? Instead of dishonesty, we look at his actions, and we see that they are consistent with the very message that he was preaching to them. 
Paul preached an unwavering message of truth. It was always yes. And now he can say boldly that his life matches that truth that he preaches. And this is integrity. This is what we're talking about when it comes to integrity. A life that lines up with the truth, no matter the situation, in front of everyone or all alone, whether he's in a group or whether it's just him and one other individual. And it was a life that was consistent with the words that he spoke, especially the words that he was preaching when he was preaching the gospel. That is what I want us to draw today from. So why didn't he come? Why was he a no-show? The reason is this. When it came to Paul's character, the thing that drove him, which is the thing that must be at the very center of our character, is he wanted their joy. He wanted their joy in Christ. He makes this statement beginning in verse 23. I call God to witness against me It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. In verse 24, you know, I'm not big on purpose statements, but if you were to look for a purpose statement with regards to your personal ministry, I don't think you would find one better than verse 24, last verse of chapter 1. Paul says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but... We work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. We work with you for your joy. He goes on, he says, I made up my mind not to come and make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, notice this, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? This is really an incredible, an incredible passage, if you, if you stop to think about it. As we're, as we're looking at this particular passage, verse 24 starts us off, and everything that follows is just unbelievable. Paul begins this section by calling God to be his witness, and he is emphatic about the truth of what follows. The reason that Paul did not show up in Corinth for that second visit, as he had originally promised that he would, was because he did not want to grieve his friends the people he was trying to minister to. He considered their feelings and how it might go if he went there to be with them as he was deciding his travel plans. If he returned to Corinth at that particular moment in time and found things out of order, found that the church was still living in sin, which was a big issue in his first letter in 1 Corinthians, If he had found them that way, then he would have had to take part in a time of painful church discipline. But his absence, not returning, gave the church at Corinth an opportunity for them to make things right on their own. That's what Paul is getting at here. They had the opportunity to repent without him needing to show up and hit him over the head with a stick. That's what he's saying. That way, when he did show up upon his return, there wouldn't be a painful moment of discipline. Rather, there would be an opportunity to celebrate and have joy. That's what he's getting at. So instead of another painful visit, rather than showing up in person, Paul writes them this letter, which we we don't have. We have his second letter and we have his fourth letter. Second Corinthians is the fourth letter that he wrote to the church. He wrote them another letter, the third letter that he wrote to them. 
And, and he writes this letter to them in order to encourage them to repent. We don't have that letter today. It's been lost to the sands of time. You say, oh, that's too bad. I think God intended it that way. I think God intended it that way. I don't think it was scripture. I don't think it was inspired, but it was necessary apostolic correction. He writes a letter and they, they repent. His decision to stay away and his letter that we don't have that he sent to them motivated them to repent. The last thing Paul wants to do in this situation then, as he's ministering to them, is to act out of anger or to do something that might be perceived as revenge. Remember, they're criticizing him. They're attacking him in his ministry. And so he doesn't want to show up and have to do church discipline and have it wrongly misunderstood as him taking vengeance on them because they're criticizing him. He stays away and he writes a letter urging them to repent. He longs to complete the faith and the joy of this church which has caused him significant difficulty. He still loves them, and he's still going to do whatever it takes to see their faith grow and and prosper. Hopefully, they can see that his decision was based on his expense for their benefit to the glory of God. The remarkable statement in in verse 24 has been so influential in my own understanding of ministry as a pastor, and I want it to really drive your personal ministry in whatever ministry God has called you to. It's just so helpful, I think, to have a a crystal clear statement, a biblical principle that you can turn back to time and time again. And I find it here in this particular chapter, chapter one, verse 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, So when we seek to serve and minister to each other, we're not seeking to domineer one another. We're not seeking to to sort of be up on some mountaintop and talking down to each other condescendingly. That's not the goal. That's not the focus. That's not the activity. That's not the character. And Paul is careful to say that is not what we are doing, not that we lord it over your faith. So what is it that we are doing? He says it right here. We are working with you for your joy. What drives Paul in his decision-making is how do I minister to this group of people, this church at Corinth, in such a way that I can make them happier in Christ? Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful purpose statement? Again, I'm not big on purpose statements, but I don't think you could find a better one than that when it comes to personal ministry. There are a thousand things that you and I are told to do when it comes to ministering. You can read all kinds of different suggestions in magazines and books. When you do this, you should do that. You, you know, all these different experts. And as we seek to be faithful in our ministry, we definitely want to grow in skill and we definitely want to grow in talent. But setting all that aside, we should never lose the focus or the goal. And it is that others would find joy in Christ. We work with you for your joy. That was Paul's clear goal in ministry. That should be your clear goal in ministry. I am working with you so that you will have joy, so that you will be happy. That's what I think pastors should do. That's what I think every saint who's called to a ministry should do. That's what faithful and effective ministry ought to aspire to. 
But then he goes on to make a whole bunch of other really amazing statements. Verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He says, if for, if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote to you as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. This is just phenomenal what he's saying here. An amazing five verses. Who, I mean, who really talks like this? I, let me just break it down so you can see what I'm getting at. Paul says, I wanted you to make me happy. And because you were living in sin... I knew that if I came, I would have to confront you about your sin, and then you would be sad, and you wouldn't make me happy. But again, he just said in the previous verse that his goal in ministry is that they would be happy. His goal is to work with them for their joy. So on the one hand, he's like, I want you guys to be happy. That's the goal of all my ministry. So I made this decision not to come and visit you because I knew it would be painful, and I'm working for your joy. And he also knew that as they worked through this time of repentance, as he's rebuking them in this letter that he wrote to them, he knew that if he showed up, there would be a lot of grieving and sorrow. There'd be tears and Kleenex. And his goal in ministry is not only to make them happy, but it's also for himself to be made happy by them. So there are two reasons he's not coming. Number one, if I show up, it's going to be painful. I need you to repent and work through that whole process. If I had shown up when I did, when I wrote that letter to you, then I would have been made sad. But the third statement is the one that really grabs me. He says, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. So three statements on joy here as regards ministry. Number one, I work for your joy. Number two, You should make me happy. I'm looking for you to make me happy. I'm looking to take joy from you. And then number three, my joy, I'm convinced, ought to be your joy. So it's just flowing every which direction. I work for your joy. As I work for your joy, I want your joy in the Lord to make me more joyful. Because at the end of the day, the things that make me joyful ought to make you joyful. And we all should be joyful. And all of us are joyful in the Lord. Now, I'm up here and I'm saying to you, get involved in youth group. Get involved in Awana. Find that ministry that God has called you to. And I dare say that as you hear me making that statement, some of you are probably feeling bad, convicted, or maybe even a little bit angry or bitter. Oh, man, I know I'm supposed to do something for the Lord, but I don't want to get involved in ministry here he's going to go again, beating me over the head with his Bible. If I could just step back for a second and and borrow from C.S. Lewis. You don't see it this way, but I'm offering you an ice cream sundae. But you don't see it that way because you will not place your faith in the word of God. I'm suggesting to you that there are better things than staying at home and binging the latest release on Netflix. I'm saying to you that as enjoyable as that might be, you might discover more joy in something else. 
And that thing which I'm holding forth to you, which I think the scriptures are holding forth to you, which if you would pursue it, you would find joy, that thing happens to be ministry. But as we saw from chapter one, ministry involves sacrifice. Ministry involves hardship and suffering. So you know that when it comes to ministry, you're going to be here on a work night or for the younger folks in the house, you're going to be here on a school night and you're going to be out a little later than maybe what you'd like to be. And you're going to be having to deal probably with kids. You're going to have to be dealing with people that you don't really know that well. And and maybe the social interaction is a little awkward. And so you're kind of struggling through all that. You're like, ah, you know, it'd just be better if I stayed home Football season has just started. Cowboys are playing. It's Monday night. I'm just going to kick up my feet and my lazy boy, turn on the game, and call it a day. Would that make you happy? Yeah, sure. It'd make me happy as well if the Cowboys actually won a game or two. I would love that. Is there anything wrong with the NFL? No. Well, it's, you know, we can talk. I mean, I, I, this is an impromptu comment that I might regret, so I, I backtrack off of that, okay? I'm, I'm, I'm backpedaling that one. Point is, would you enjoy that? Could you enjoy that? Yeah, but guess what Scripture is telling you? There's something out there that would bring you even more joy, even more joy. But for you to have that joy, you're going to have to suspend your own critical understanding of the social interactions and the dynamics of this church, you're going to have to set that aside and by faith, you're going to have to say, God is telling me here in 2 Corinthians through the ministry and this autobiography that Paul is penning that there is indeed something that will make me happier. You can't see it. That's okay. That's what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. You don't need to see it. You need to show up. You need to labor. You need to sacrifice and then be surprised surprised at the joy that follows. No different than when my kids were little and we pulled up to Dairy Queen for the first time and I'm like, here, just try this. And they're like, "Mm." and I just put that first spoonful in their mouth. And now every day, even in the middle of the winter, dad, can we go to Dairy Queen and get some ice cream? They discovered, they tasted, and they saw that ice cream was good. And you know what the scriptures say? It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. I know it looks like a lot of work. Some of you live out far away. My brother James has just moved out to Chase, okay? So you're looking at like a 45-minute drive to come in. And I'm not speaking about James here. You, you're awesome. He's going to be here on Tuesday working on our security system. So I'm not in any way being critical of James right now. But some of you are like, oh, we live far away, and it's a drive, and there's traffic. You know, they're tearing up, they're tearing up Columbia, and they're tearing up Tronquille all the way out to the airport. And you know, I'm gonna have to go through all this like traffic detours and whatever. I'll just stay at home. You say I'm gonna get there, and perhaps there's not gonna be anybody there that I'm close to that I don't have a relationship with, and it'll be awkward because I'm not sure who to talk to. I'm not sure what I'll say. Live by faith. Live by faith. Trust in what God is telling you. Get involved in a ministry, not because it's your duty, not because you have to, because God wants you to. God doesn't need anything from you. He can do it all on his own. God calls you to this, that you might share with him in his miraculous work among the nations, that you would taste joy. 
Time has gotten away from us this morning as a result of the baptisms. I don't have time to finish the other points, but I want to just conclude with this. When we look at Jesus Christ in the Gospels, it can be honestly said without exaggeration. There has never been any other man on the face of this earth, nor will there be any other man ever to come who didn't work as hard as Jesus did for the joy of his people. And when we look at his life in the Gospels, he was criticized and ridiculed. Questions about his birth and his genealogy, whether Joseph and Mary were properly married when they had him. They were constantly criticizing him, making fun of him. Where does he come from? Backwoods redneck town called Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? He healed, he worked, he labored, he taught, he served for his people from sunrise to sunset. He worked. And at the end of it all, they crucified him. All of this by God's plan. Jesus was not taken surprised by any of this. And he goes to the cross and he suffers a horrific fate. And of course, as you know, on the third day, he experiences the joy of resurrection. And we tell ourselves, that's the gospel. We suffer, but someday it's all going to be good. When you look at the gospels, you don't really see these moments of joy there's no passage where, where it talks about Peter telling a joke and, and Jesus just laughing uproariously. You, you don't see that in the Gospels. And so the temptation that we have, the, the, the way that we are sometimes deceived is we look at the life of Christ and we tend to think that it was all work all the time and he just worked himself to the bone and then he got crucified. But in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews encourages his readers to run the race that is before them. He's encouraging them to be faithful to God and to pursue ministry. And he says, let us run the race that is before us with endurance. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who went to the cross. But he makes this incredible statement, who for the joy that was set before him, went to the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. I'm going to pray for us. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a few more songs of worship. But as we conclude this morning, know this. God has called you to a ministry. It is not a call to an obligation. It is not a call to a hard, laborious task. Will it be difficult at times? Absolutely. Is there labor involved? You better believe it. But what is God calling you to? He's calling you to a work of joy. If you would have the faith to see the joy that is there. My prayer for you as we close is that you would pursue ministry. Your sacrifice for the benefit of others to the glory of God. Pray with me, church. Father in heaven, this morning as we close, our prayer, Lord, is that you would show us 
that place of service that you have prepared for us. As you say in the book of Ephesians, you have called us to good works which you prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, we have not walked in those works for so long. As we kick off another school year and another ministry year, Lord, our prayer is that we would find those works that you have prepared just for us. And our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would give us faith to walk in obedience for the goal of joy. Joy in you above all else. Joy in your glory. God, do that work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.